Hi, everyone, and welcome to Urban History, an urban history podcast hosted by myself, Camille. And I'm Maggie. And we're two graduate students at the University of Colorado, Denver. And we really like talking about urban history. (laughs) And we would love to share a couple of stories that we have looked into and learned about especially this week, but also the entire semester. Um, And they're both going to kind of surround a theme, uh, what we're calling being in public space. So Maggie, I would love to hear what you've got to say. All right, all right. Okay, Camille, what do Paris, Hong Kong, Bagasa, and Moscow all have in common? Uh, (laughs) Wonderful, walkable. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that is right. I think you cheated, mm. but it's fine. So they're all major cities housing over 5 million people, and they were ranked by the Institute for Transportation and Development Policy to be among the most walkable cities in the world as of mm. 2020. So basically, I want to talk to you today about um, how people move through cities and how that has changed from kind of our idea of what the start of city planning was um, and through today. So basically, from the start of civilization, human beings designed cities for people. And this really meant creating small city blocks with well-connected streets that brought citizens to pedestrian-oriented public realms. And while ad hoc city design standards, they were like regulating form back then, um, cities were really being formed out of necessity and convenience rather than regulation. And so... Ancient cities like Greece and Rome were designed to be pedestrian-friendly because the vast majority of people were making their daily commutes by foot. And traveling by foot remained the popular form of transportation, you know, for centuries to come. If you think back to the Harvard X video that we watched at the beginning of the school year about Jon Snow and the 1854 Mm. Broad Street cholera outbreak, you'll remember that Snow pinpointed the problematic pump the pump that was giving everyone cholera. Problematic pump. <laughs> Problematic pump. <laughs> by by showing that it was the closest source of water by walking to almost all those who had fallen ill and right. died of the disease. And so um, even up to the 1850s, you know, the main source of transportation was just our feet. Mm-hmm. But if you fast forward with me to the late 1800s, where city design practices transitioned from pedestrian cities to transit cities, um... You know, so during this time, steel frame buildings are rising and it's allowing higher densities of people to literally live one on top of another. And in American cities, Denver included, Mm -hmm. this gave way to the implementation of rail-based public transit, you know, thinking subways and streetcars. So soon after this, planners like Olmsted Jr. began advocating for zoning ordinances that separated land uses for the sake of making cities more, quote-unquote, orderly, which... I mean, we see right through this, right? This was Mm -hmm. race-based zoning codes, and they were used as a tool of segregation that relegated black residents to urban slums while creating suburbs for wealthy white property owners. And it's a strategy we're still, you know, grappling with how to confront and correct today. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, a consequence of separating these land uses was the new need for automated transportation from the home to daily points of interest, such as work, school, the grocery store, what have you. Now, in a perfect utopian society, this may not have been an issue. Um, Ebenezer Howard actually famously created and advocated for the Garden City, which 
in his mind, you know, he envisioned suburban communities connected to cities by rail. And had this movement been less conservative at its time, well-maintained commuter rail systems may have been constructed across the United States to connect suburbs to metros. Sad. (laughs) Rip. (laughs) And you know what? What did we get instead? What did we get? Cars. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) We got the rise of the automobile. The rise of the automobile. And we got transit-oriented development. So... The Federal Highway Act of 1956 was the nail in the coffin for pedestrians. Um, As transportation engineers were directed to create interstate highway systems, urban planners were clearing neighborhoods of low-income and minority residents to make room for the expressway. And, you know, how else were suburbanites supposed to get back downtown? Um, This new focus on personal vehicles changed the way that planners designed all areas of the city. Arterial and collector roads were becoming wider to accommodate increased volumes of traffic, uh, thus making it harder for pedestrians and bicyclists to cross streets. Um, In some places, sidewalks were completely overlooked, basically solidifying the fate of the pedestrian. Luckily, today, citizens around the country are demanding cities be designed to accommodate a variety of mobility options. And this push for reorienting our neighborhoods towards pedestrian movement is actually directly in line with the topics that are currently at the forefront front, excuse me, of the planning profession. Mm-hmm. And so Denver's transportation plan, Denver Moves Everyone 2050, actually includes two vision statements that directly address the goals of equity and environmental planning. So in response to the need for environmentally just transportation networks, Denver envisions a thriving, sustainable city connected to nature and resilient to climate change. Um, Secondly, we want to see an equitable, affordable, and inclusive community with a high-quality uh, style of life for citizens, regardless of income, race, ethnicity, or ability. Um, and, you know, here we are, 2021, at a time when gas prices have risen well past $3 a gallon. I'm not complaining. Uh, community by personal vehicle, just, it's not in everyone's price range. And I know I say that lightly, I joke, but in a city like Denver where the cost of housing and just generally the cost of living continues to climb, designing walkable neighborhoods and publicly funded bicycle infrastructure is a small and necessary step towards creating a more equitable transit network for our citizens. Yeah. So that's my long-winded wow. answer. Thanks, Maggie. That's This is right up my alley, truly. I mean... I know that you've read Happy City by I Charles have. Montgomery. I have. And I think something I was really left with from that book is that creating more walkable, transit-friendly communities, it's more economical, it's more equitable, and it also just creates a better quality of life. I mean, I just notice such a difference in my day when I'm commuting by car to different jobs or I'm walking, I'm biking, I'm taking public transit. 100%. Yeah. 100%. I mean, the quality of life. And, and it's also just beneficial, I think, as planners when we think about urban form and the urban fabric. When we design for the people on the sidewalk, mm-hmm. first of all, please, please everyone put in <laughs> sidewalks. But when you design for the people on the sidewalk, you're going to get a better product, I think, citywide as far as how you interact with um, the buildings and the surroundings and the space that we occupy Um, And I think probably the space that you're about to talk about as well. That's true. So I want to take public space in a bit of a different direction. And I'd like to discuss public space beautification for whom? All right, let's hear it. Let's hear it. 
So I truly believe that citizens deserve public spaces that evoke beauty, inspire greatness, and both give and encourage respect. And I think that you and I, our classmates and our colleagues, have likely entered the planning profession with this at least a little bit in mind. But what is beautiful in a public space is always and will always be subjective. And planners traditionally hold the power to make these decisions about what a public space looks like, and importantly, who that target audience is. Mm. So I'd first want to kind of return to a really pivotal time in American planning history, which was the World's Columbian Exhibition, the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. (laughs) And this is hugely uh, influential in shaping American planning profession as a whole. I think you've likely heard this quote, but it's, uh, it's pertinent here by Daniel Burnham. Make no little plans. They have no magic to stir men's, men's blood and probably themselves will not be realized. Make big plans, aim high in hope and work, remembering that a noble logical diagram once recorded will never die, but long after we are gone, it'll be a living thing asserting itself with ever-growing insistency. So I think this really sets the stage for the way that Burnham thought about planning and he thought about creating public spaces. Um, And he was really influential in that, but um, there are some things to unpack. (laughs) Let's hear it. So Burnham was inspired by Haussmann's grand and revolution-proof boulevards in Paris and wanted to kind of bring this look and idea to America. Along with a lot of influential architects, landscape architects, and planners like Frederick Law Olmsted, John Wellborn Root, Charles B. Atwood, and many others, they used the opportunity of the 1893 Chicago's World Fair to create an ideal of what a city should look like. This is a city that would represent Chicago as a world-class city to visitors around the world. The White City, as it was called, was a colossal undertaking and an even more colossal outcome. It was such an awe-inspiring, once-in-a-millennium event that had to come to an end. And, I mean, I just found this fascinating. Planners, architects, and politicians, when the fair ended, they decided that, and I quote, no one could bear the idea of the white city lying empty and desolate. Better to have it vanquished suddenly in a blaze of glory than fall (laughs) into gradual disrepair and dilapidation. Burn it to the ground. (laughs) Burn it to the ground. It's, it was... I don't know if, I know you've seen photos of this fair, but it's, it's awe-inspiring. I mean, it wants me to travel back in time and visit, but I just can't imagine, that is so unfathomable that they would rather live to see it burn than watch it crumble. (laughs) (laughs) And not only that, but Burnham was also known to push for only a couple of entrances into the fair. He believed that visitors should experience the White City as he intended to enter in a certain way and see it in all of its grandeur. And I don't know about you, but... This seems to be an incredibly impractical standard to set for a public space. Something that has to represent just absolute perfection, or it should be destroyed and not exist at all. (laughs) It's very Frank Lloyd Wright nailing the furniture to the floor, right? I designed it this way, and that's how it should be. You're never allowed to enjoy it in any other way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And something... It's something that cannot be experienced from different angles, different perspectives, by different people, different audiences. Something formulaic and, like, two-dimensional. But, um, you know, nonetheless, this 1893 Chicago's World Fair led to the 1909 plan for Chicago um, and urban planning and a version that we now recognize and largely the City Beautiful movement was really inspired by this moment in time. Proponents of the City Beautiful movement believed that improving the physical conditions of a city would banish disease, uh, violence, crime, moral imperfections, just bad things in their eyes they felt it would elevate feelings of democracy rationality success grandeur power political triumph all of these things in all would bring light into places of chaos Mm. 
And cities around the world or around the country took to this style and theory of architecture and public space in creating their own white cities. Uh, you know, for example, here in Denver, we have Civic Center Park um, was created inspiration from the movement that sparked in Chicago. Now, there was a bit of shifting happening, though, during this time as people started to recognize um, some of the not so great elements of the City Beautiful movement. This led to the City Practical movement and Benjamin C. Marsh, a New York housing ref reform enthusiast, um, said at the first national conference on city planning in Washington, D.C. in May of 1909, um, he said that City Beautiful was too concerned with cosmetic display, parks, civic centers, and other great public works were attractive, but the poor only occasionally could afford to escape from their squalid, confining surroundings to view the architectural perfection and to experience the aesthetic delights of the, the you know, improvements. Um, he really called for zoning, especially limits on factory location, height limits, efficient transportation, parks, and playgrounds. And you mentioned zoning too, and some mm -hmm. of this zoning led to really problematic zoning of redlining and putting segregation and things like that. But this was kind of a moment of let's practically set up the city in logical ways. Some good organization. Yes, yes. And also maybe beauty is not the number one and most important thing in planning. Now, in learning about the World's Fair, this contrast between the ideal and the reality of life in Chicago is really, really jarring. Um, and it really brought me to kind of moments in our contemporary Denver and just America in general. Um, while descriptions of the fair were awe-inspiring, I it felt like the fair and this style of planning was really just a band-aid or a distraction for larger societal issues at the time. Mm. Um, the white city was in co direct contrast to Chicago. Uh, this was a place that was experiencing the panic of 1893 at the time, an economic depression in the United States that impacted really every sector of the economy. This meant massive unemployment, uh, union strikes, and overall economic struggles that really directly impacted the construction and attendance at the fair. A lot of people died when they were building these massive buildings, um, and there were strikes going on, workers crossing the picket line, and then just general exploitation. Um, the fair was really a temporary salve and a distraction, and uh, when the fair was over, these issues continued. Now, the same band-aid we can see being applied in Denver, for example. Um, it's uh, Denver's Civic Center Park was inspired by the White City, and if you remember, it closed indefinitely this fall, um, as we learned about in class, and also just experienced by walking by it in our own city. The park had become a tent community for people experiencing homelessness to seek public space for shelter. Uh, cited as the reason for closure was garbage, sanitation, and rat issues. The city handed out notices and they fenced off the park. And this was really, I mean, frustrating for everyone. It couldn't be used as shelter. It couldn't be used as a public green space or transportation or for really any other reason except to become a hostile, fenced-off place accessible to no one. And uh, fencing up the park and cleaning it up again to open this winter was really that band-aid. There's still massive homelessness after a global pandemic period of job changes, I mean, op opioid epidemic, <laughs> the country doesn't have free health care to help with people seeking mental health services. And it's just hard to see a public space where, you know, if sanitation is a problem in Civic Center Park, maybe offering free bathrooms, shower services, etc., mm -hmm. could be a reason to have a public service in that park. If homelessness is a, a clearly a present issue, can the park be a temporary, like, sanctioned place for folks to seek shelter? I mean, I think just learning throughout the semester, experiencing it in my own life, but also really being inspired by and learning from the mistakes of the City Beautiful movement. Public spaces should be beautiful, but I think they should serve the needs of the public first and foremost. And I think as we enter into our planning careers, 
we're, if we're tasked with creating new public spaces, how can we make them fit in the context of the city and the challenges that exist? Um, how can we contribute personally, politically, et cetera, to helping support these changes that would help actually address problems in our cities? Um, I think we need cities to be beautiful, but they need to be healthy, thriving on the exterior and and thriving for those who live there. They should have thriving, healthy, beautiful lives too. The former should not be prioritized over the latter. And I know that, yeah, you agree and so many people in our class do. I, we all agree. Um, and I really like this topic and I'm glad you brought it up because I think it really hits home, you know, this kind of overarching theme throughout the class. Um, we put a lot of emphasis on what, on what the definition of civic might be, mm-hmm. um, especially as it relates to Civic Center Park. But just this idea of who... Planning for whom? Who are we actually designing these spaces for, these mm-hmm. systems for? And, and you know, how going forward can we improve them to better serve the community? I think, I mean, that's our charge at this point. It definitely felt like because planning came from really architecture, you know, Burnham was an architect. And the way that he spoke about his work, it was, though he wanted to create a beautiful event for Chicago, I think he also wanted to be the amazing architect who created a beautiful like <laughs> fair for Chicago. You know, his, his own career aspirations were really pivotal. And I think it, being a public servant, which planners really should be means we're working for the, the public. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think, uh, similar character traits, Le Corbusier did the same thing, right? Mm. Who should plan the city? He, his idea was like blank slate, blank canvas, as a planner, I'm in charge. I'm the expert. Citizens can come in later and figure it out. I think is... there's that quote we, we learned in Methods. Yes. Uh, actually, c- citizens shouldn't be involved in planning. Yes. <laughs> it should be the expert. Me. It should be me. Which is hilarious <laughs> now. It's hilarious now. One person planning for everyone. I mean... How could one... For, I mean, you just... One person can... I believe in, in education and expertise, but... That doesn't mean that other people can't have great ideas and expertise. So, and there are gaps. There are just yeah. gaps in your understanding of how the world, how how individuals interact with the world, and how the world interacts in return with individuals. Right. So, yeah, that's not a one person job, yeah. frankly. And I just I love public spaces. I love place that people of all different walks of life living in a city can come and experience in their own ways the way that they desire to experience that public space and share it together and it's it's hard when certain needs are just the only ones that we want or you know there's there's tension or there's frustration between citizens for how different people choose to use public space and I understand that that's hard but I think I really like just thinking about is the city respecting you like I feel like the city respects me but I can understand the city doesn't respect a lot of people and maybe they don't want to respect the city in return a hundred percent. And I mean, in the wake of 2020 and the pandemic, nothing has been more essential to us um, than outdoor public spaces yes. um, in, in, in cities large and small. And I think there are, um, as far as respect goes, like I can just think of even like cultural things as far as um, having a party in a park and mm-hmm. getting a noise complaint. And it's like, is this what matters today? Mm-hmm. Could this be what we're... Is this what we're here about right now, you know? And um... I think this year, I mean, one of the great things about living in a city, I've always thought that about being on public transportation, is the more that you're exposed to different people that are outside of your own, you know, household, yes. I don't know, the more that you have a care and consideration for people that are 
different than you. And I mean, we've been forced to not be so much around each other and it kind of makes sense that there's been a tension now. We're just kind of talking about tension in the cities lately, but it's true. I mean, I think you notice it and um, it's, it's hard because I think that is one of the best things about living in a city and people have forgotten that. A hundred percent. And what an exciting time going forward too. Like this is our, our time, um, you know, as, as future planners to be creating these spaces that are more amenable to um, introducing people of different walks of life. Right. You're, you're hundred percent right. That's the best part of living in a city. Um, it's a treat obviously to have all your friends around you, but there's something special about acquaintances mm. and loose ties and, and I don't know. I just, just little what, moments with strangers yes, passing by. Yes. That's what you, that's what we miss about being inside. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yesterday I was actually biking through civic center park and <laughs> there was a girl who was riding a lime scooter and accidentally went off of a curb and just ate it. And her <laughs> friend was laughing and I was laughing and they didn't know me, but they laughed cause I laughed and. And just sharing that space, having different experiences in that space was just cute. So Those are the good parts. Now, now we're rambling about how much we love cities <laughs> and public spaces, but it's true. But there's there's critique to be there. There's thinking about our public spaces, who created them to be there. But then just going out and enjoying them. Yeah. We right. can do it all. Well, thanks, Maggie. Thank this you. Great. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Urban History. And uh, we'll see you next week. Maybe not. But <laughs> <laughs> thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.